Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com. Revelation chapter 17, as we now consider Mystery Babylon, Mystery Babylon the Great. So I think we'll divide up this chapter into the following subdivisions, and I've got quite a bit of material to share with you, so I I hope that uh, you're able to take notes or that you've got your Bible and you are ready to go. And I I also doubt that we'll get through the entire book of Revelation uh, today. So you should probably consider this part one, and we'll finish part two uh, next time, because I can anticipate that that we're going to need more time to, to fully consider the spiritual implication of Babylon. Who is Babylon? What does Babylon represent? So to do that, we're going to go through a couple of things. First, the origins of Babylon, the history of Babylon. Secondly, we'll, we'll look at the Babylonian exile, because that gives us another example of Babylon, who it is, what it is, how it works, how it operates. And then we'll see in the book of Revelation how John basically takes Jerusalem and turns it into Babylon. Jerusalem becomes Babylon in the book of Revelation. Now, there's evidence to support that, and we'll bring part of that evidence out in part one. The other part will come in part two and later on in Revelation 18. Um, but I, I, trying to, I am trying to paint for you right now a road map, a picture of where we're going to end up so that you can see and appreciate the final stage of this journey, which is Babylon today, and the spiritual fulfillment of everything that Babylon means. So this is the mystery of Babylon the Great. The the origins, all the way through the exile, ultimately in the book of Revelation, Jerusalem becomes Babylon, and then what is the implication? What is the application to us living today? Babylon today, the spiritual fulfillment, and this is where we get into the the prophetic significance of Babylon, which I believe all of God's word is is profitable. I believe all of it is applicable, and even if we if we take the approach, the preterist approach, that says these things all relate to something that have has already occurred. In the past, the preterist um, approach generally says that most of the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled up to and including the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And they make some powerful arguments to that effect, and I think it makes a lot of sense. But there seems to be this misunderstanding that if you accept the preterist approach of Revelation, 
that somehow it doesn't have much application or practical value to us today. That if someone can prove that these things have already occurred, then it is little more to us than a history lesson. When actually all of these things, Scripture says, are written for our warning, for our admonition, so that we can learn from the past and not make the same mistakes that they made. So when we look at the history of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt and their journey through the wilderness and how the Lord sustained them and brought them into the promised land, well, that is not just ancient history for us to memorize, but it, it contains spiritual and prophetic significance because these things were written to us for an example, as an example, as a warning to us and as a teaching for us. And furthermore, it is a prophetic foreshadowing often of a spiritual reality that we are going to experience as well. So coming out of Egypt represents us coming out of the world. The journey through the wilderness represents our walk with the Lord being stripped of the things of this world and being what I call reduced to Christ and then coming into the promised land represents the overcomers and, and living the normal Christian life as God intended it to be lived, a life based on a relationship with Jesus, not a religion about Jesus. So all of these things are significant, not just because they are history, but because they are, there are prophetic and spiritual application applications to us today. Well, in the same way, even if we could say for sure that many of the events in the book of Revelation uh, came to pass in a literal way in the first century, it, it doesn't mean it has no spiritual or prophetic significance to us today, because it does. And secondly, it does not mean that these, that these things cannot happen again in the future in some other way. Uh, often, something happens in Scripture that is a prophetic foreshadowing of something else that will happen. And these things tend to happen in patterns, and they, and they tend to repeat themselves more than once. Uh, so, even if if we accepted the preterist position that says all of these things were fulfilled, it doesn't mean, number one, that they don't matter to us today, and secondly, it doesn't mean that they can't happen again in some other form and fashion in the future. So, those are just some words of encouragement to you that the book of Revelation, like any other scripture, and like all scripture, is profitable it's useful for teaching and for warning, and I believe it does. Uh, even if many things can be said to have been fulfilled in the past, uh, it doesn't mean it can't also come around again and, and have a future fulfillment. So that's why my approach to the book of Revelation is usually a hybrid approach that takes the best of all the different ways to approach the book of Revelation and says, you know, it could be any of these, it could be all of these. So let's keep that in mind as we begin to consider 
Babylon. Who is Babylon and what does Babylon represent? First, we we want to discuss the origins of Babylon. So before we actually get into Revelation 17, let's go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, as we begin to consider the history of Babylon. Now, everything that happens in the natural has a spiritual force behind it. The the natural is the manifestation of something spiritual, either for good or for bad. So there is a spiritual Babylon, a spirit of Babylon, and there is the historical record of Babylon, and all of these things are important as we get to the bottom of what John is explaining in the book of Revelation. So Genesis chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 8. Now it's, this period of time is immediately or not long after the flood. So it says that Cush, Genesis 10, 8, begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So this Babel, which would later become Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, is the first mention in scripture of Babylon. So this is what we want to see. Uh, Nimrod, the son of Cush, was the great-great-grandson of Noah. Now it says that Nimrod, the reason we're focusing on Nimrod is because Nimrod founded, it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now he founded other kingdoms, other cities, including Nineveh. And uh, so he was a founder of cities. He was an organizer. He was a leader. And scripture says that he was a mighty one on the earth and that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, just about all the translations I consulted say mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, but if you dig deeper into the into the Hebrew, and if you read some other uh, commentaries from biblical scholars, you see that word before the Lord could also be translated as against the Lord. So Nimrod was not a a. It, 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 scripture is not merely commenting on the hunting skills of Nimrod. Scripture is actually indicating that Nimrod was a mighty warrior against the Lord. He was fighting against the Lord. He was a mighty uh, rebel against the Lord. And he began to organize people and to rule over them and to reign over them as a mighty one. A mighty, a mighty hunter. Now, the the story of Nimrod and and all of the tradition surrounding Nimrod and and the early 
the the very early Babylonian Empire uh, is is more than what we can cover in the limited time that we have. But basically, Nimrod was deified by the Assyrians. And Nimrod is the basis for the constellation Orion, which is the hunter. So the the astrologist of Babylon attributed Orion, the hunter, to Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty one, it says, on the earth, a mighty rebel against the Lord. And organized cities and actually organized a religion, a cult around himself. So, so why does this matter? Because this shows the root of Babylon and what Babylon is all about. So then we go into Genesis chapter 11, the, the next chapter over Genesis 11, beginning in verse one. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased building the city. Therefore, it is name, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So isn't it interesting? And again, this was the first, the first city, the first kingdom mentioned in scripture that Nimrod founded. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And isn't it interesting that the first thing that Nimrod attempted to do was to organize his community. He was a community organizer, but he, <laughs> he tried to organize a city. He tried to bring people together to rule over them, but also to create a political and a religious system that would strengthen man. And I, I say it's religious. Much of, of what I'm sharing with you is from the pages of secular history and not necessarily from scripture in terms of what Nimrod uh, 
what Nimrod did and, and the ancient Babylonian religious cult. Scripture doesn't speak a whole lot to that, but it does mention something very important here as we consider the basis of this city and the rationale, the reason why they wanted to build this tower. It says that the city and, and the tower of Babel in particular is something that they wanted to build to reach to the heavens. A tower that would reach to heaven, and it represented, since Nimrod is the founder, it represented rebellion against God and the deification of man as God. And just look at the self-centered nature of it. They said, come, let us make for ourselves, let us build for ourselves, let us make a name for ourselves. So God wanted them to scatter, to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. And they said, no, we want to settle down right here and build up a big city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we won't be scattered abroad, but we can get stronger and we can build something for ourselves and make a name for ourselves and build a tower to heaven so that I'm, I'm giving the implication here. I'm speculating here that they wanted to build a tower, a high tower, so that if God decided to send another flood, they could say, oh, well, we can just climb this tower. We can build a name for ourselves. We can protect ourselves. We can build a tower that reaches to heaven so we don't have anything to fear. We don't have to be afraid of another flood. We don't have to be afraid of, of God punishing us. We're going to build this tower. We are, we are going to build this city. We are going to make a name for ourselves. And so this is what Babel represents. Babel, the name actually means confusion by mixing confusion babel is confusion and 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 to to speak inco incoherently today actually the word is babel so this is where this the etymology of this word is coming from babel means confusion by mixing and it represents the mixing of what well mostly the mixing of political power with man centered religion. It's the mixture of political power with man-centered religion. Nothing activates the emotions, nothing controls people, nothing gets people going more than politics and religion. And if you can combine those two forces, then you have a very, very powerful mixture. In this case, God came down and he saw what they were doing and he says, no, it's it's really too early for this globalist movement. It's really too early in the history of man for them to be allowed to create a one world government or a one world religion. That will not be for many, many uh, millennia to come. And so let's Let's confuse their language and put a stop to this. So we see the Lord directly intervening here in the beginning to discourage this kind of a mixture of political power and man-centered 
religion. Uh, because the as we have said previously, whenever you combine church and state, or whenever you combine politics with religion, you are creating a circumstance that is going to be detrimental to the people of God. Because it always ends badly for people who want to bear the testimony of Jesus when the religion when the political authorities exercise religious power as well or when the religious system is subservient to the political system or when those two systems are mixed or when those two systems cooperate with one another it always means something bad for those who find themselves on the wrong side of the religious establishment. Meaning, if you don't worship God the way we say you should worship God, if you don't follow the traditions, if you don't follow the customs, if you don't uh, submit to the religious authorities, if you are not pure in your doctrine as we define doctrine, as we define teaching, if you are if we find you to be um, not towing the line, uh, then not only do we have the power to uh, excommunicate you, but we have the power to exterminate you. <laughs> and that's uh, the history of religion is, is a history where anytime religion and state came together, church and state or religion and state, came together it always rip, it always meant that somebody is going to be killed for their beliefs so this is the genesis the origins of babylon so then we consider moving along in the record of scripture we go to the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3. So, there's an ancient Babylonian empire founded by Nimrod. And once God said, this is, this is going too far too fast, I'm going to, we're going to go down and confuse their language. So they stopped building the city, and that, that put uh, those plans on hold, and it delayed those plans but eventually we see the Babylonian Empire rising up again. So that by the, by the time of that Israel was established as a nation and as a powerful nation, that the kingdom of, of Babylon was a world power in, in partial fulfillment of what Nimrod was trying to do in the beginning, build a, build a great city with a tower that reaches to heaven and control people, control, make a name for themselves and control people politically as well as religiously. And so the kingdom of Babylon began to become a world power. And a, it was a world power that began to threaten the nation of Israel. And so we know from the history of Israel that the empire of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC. 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, laid siege to Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and removed a remnant of Jews who were not killed to live in exile in Babylon. So you see from the beginning, the desire was to rule the earth and to do so through political and religious control. God put a stop to that and delayed that purpose for a period of time. And until then, he permitted that purpose. He permitted them to build that city and build that empire. And so ultimately, it was the Babylonians who destroyed uh, Jerusalem. So that's where we come to in in Daniel chapter 3, and I I will not read the entire chapter, but this chapter 3 of Daniel describes very succinctly how Babylon operates. And this is where the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold. It was 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide. And they pass the commandment that we're going to play the music. And when you hear the music being played, that that everyone, no matter what your nation, no matter what your language, no matter what your belief, when you hear the sound of the music being played, you will fall down and worship this image that we have made. And if you will not, you will be cast into a fiery furnace. And so this sets up the the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being cast into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down. And then the fourth man appeared with them there in the fire so that they were not harmed. Uh, but we turn to it as an example of Babylonian thought. Babylon absorbed many nations and their their standard method of operation was to force these nations, these defeated foes, to abandon their own customs, to abandon and forsake their own religious ideas, and be absorbed into the Babylonian culture and become one of them. So once again, what's the connection? Well, we see, again, a political power controlling people with religion. And so this was this was the way Babylon operated. Now, later on, the Greeks, for example, Alexander, Alexander the Great, who conquered most of the world before Rome, they didn't force anyone to change their religion. They just collected tribute. They collected taxes. They installed their own, uh, their own leadership, but they left people's customs and left their religion alone. And that is one reason why historians attribute so much success, so much uh, the, the rapidity of 
Alexander at being able to conquer and subdue these nations to the point that in some cases he just marched right in and, and took over and uh, the people welcomed him. They didn't even uh, resist him um, because he didn't he didn't try to change their customs. He didn't try to change their religious beliefs. Uh, but the previous rulers, the Babylonians, that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted everyone to worship the way they wanted to be worshipped. And so they tried to control people through uh, strength and through manipulating their religious beliefs and absorbing them into their own. So Daniel 3 is a good example of that Babylonian pattern. It's creating, for example, in Daniel 3, it's creating an image of gold and forcing everyone to worship this image or they would be killed. Now, does that sound familiar? You remember from our previous studies of the previous chapters in Revelation, we see the false prophet creating an image of the beast and commanding everyone to worship this image and commanding them to have the mark and the number of his name. And if you don't, then you're going to be killed. And so doesn't this sound very familiar? It should sound very familiar because that's very uh, similar to what is going on here in Daniel chapter three. And even the, the image of gold that they created has some significance. We talked about the mark of the beast in 666 and how six is the number of man repeated three times. Three is the number of divinity. And so 666 is the grand achievement of religion, which is to deify man, man to become God. And so it's interesting that this gold statue of Daniel 3 that they created, that they wanted everybody to fall down and worship. This gold statue was 60 cubits high and it was six cubits wide. So again, we see the presentation of the number six. And it, we also see that this statue is, is 10 times taller than it is wide, which means it's more symbolic of a tower. It's like another tower of Babel. Uh, or more like a phallus, a sexual symbol. So this gold statue is very reminiscent of the Mark of the Beast in Revelation. It's also significant to consider uh, the Babylonian kingdom here in, in the book of Daniel, uh, because this kingdom... The Babylonian kingdom is part of the beast in Daniel's dreams. And we saw that the beast in John's revelation, in John's vision, is really just a combination of all the beasts that Daniel saw in his dreams. And the first beast, the first world empire that's part of that beast is Babylon. So that's important to note because it indicates that the beast in John's revelation is and contains elements that are both political and religious. And the reason I believe that has to be the case is because I believe that 
people who are trying to govern the world, globalists, people who are trying to uh, rule the world, I believe that they realize that people are more devoted and more fanatical over their religious beliefs than they are their political beliefs. And I think they realize that in order to truly get power over the nations of the earth, it's necessary to bind them together according, not according to their politics, but according to their religion. Now, this is very critical to understanding how all of this applies today. And the reason I share this is so that we can recognize these elements and recognize these characteristics and these traits of the spirit of Babylon when we see them coming up. So when we see, for example, Christians trying to take over the government or trying to get church and state to come together, you will see the same element of Babylon in that as you do in, for example, Sharia law, the Islamic version of controlling people uh, by politics as well as controlling their religious beliefs. So it, it is all, there is nothing new to this. There is nothing strange or surprising about any of this. And in fact, it has its origin and its root all the way back in Genesis, all the way in the beginning of the Bible, many millennia ago, where one man began to be a mighty hunter against the Lord and began to organize man into a very powerful political and religious system. So we keep all of that in mind, and then we, we come into the New Testament, and we begin to move toward the expression of Babylon in the book of Revelation. Now we know that eventually God called his people out of Babylon. The Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And it was Cyrus who issued a proclamation that the Jews should be allowed to leave and return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and their city. And so that was the origin of the call to come out of Babylon. But what happened in the course of time, as you know, Jerusalem was reestablished, the temple was rebuilt, the priesthood was uh, was reinstituted, and Jerusalem became very prosperous and, and very powerful. The Medes and the Persians were conquered by the Greeks, and then the Greeks were conquered by the Romans, and so that brings us into the New Testament and brings us into the period of time when Jesus the Messiah was born. But by the time of the birth of, of Jesus, the Messiah, Jerusalem had become apostate. And we know this from reading the Gospels and reading the assessment of Jesus towards the religious leaders, towards the religious institution of his day, which was Judaism. 
which he described as whitewashed tombs, as unfruitful vineyard, and warned in Matthew 23 that all of these beautiful stones of the temple and all the things that people looked at in terms of the outward institution of Judaism, Jesus said all of these things will be destroyed. There will not be one stone left upon another. And so in Matthew 23, just after, he gives his woes to the Pharisees. How will you escape the damnation of hell? Matthew 24, he begins to convey the the outcome of this apostate city, this apostate nation, which ultimately was fulfilled when they betrayed him to the Romans and had him crucified. And then Jerusalem itself was destroyed in A.D. 70, yet again, but this time by the Romans. So there's evidence to suggest that the early Christians began to regard Jerusalem as Babylon already. They began to regard Jerusalem as yet another political and religious system that was detrimental to the purposes of God, something that claimed to be of the Lord and yet was opposed to the Lord because they had failed to recognize Jesus the Messiah. Now, not all. We know that there were many Jews who did believe and thank God for that. But for the most part, we see that the early Christians are being persecuted and that Jerusalem has become apostate. And this is the, the where the idea comes from that Jerusalem has committed adultery against the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says how the, fa- how the faithful city has now become a harlot. And so based on that and, and based on the understanding of early Christians in Jerusalem and applying exactly what Jesus foretold in Matthew 24, that when you see these things beginning to come to pass, that you should flee Jerusalem, f- flee from Judea, they took that literally. They took it as they took it spiritually that Jerusalem had become Babylon and that it had enslaved God's people and that they had to come out of Babylon, which is Jerusalem. They had to come out in order to, to flee from the wrath to come. So when we look in First Peter chapter five and verse thirteen, it's interesting as he closes his letter a letter written to Jews in the dispersion, Jews who were scattered across the provinces of Rome, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, and he is writing them. And in 1 Peter 5.13, he closes out and he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark my son. She who is in Babylon... Now, many scholars believe that Peter was writing from Jerusalem when he sent greetings from she who is in Babylon. Now, some people will say that Peter was in Rome, but that seems to be more to support the Roman Catholic view that Peter was the first bishop of Rome and that kind of supports their religious tradition more so than actual scholarship. Many scholars, biblical scholars, believe 
that Peter was writing from Jerusalem, and he sends greetings from she who is in Babylon. In other words, Christians there along with him, living in Babylon, living in Jerusalem. He is writing to those who have been scattered abroad, but yet he is still there writing them from Jerusalem. Now, we can't we can't say that 100% and say that that's so, but if it's, if it's not Jerusalem, where is it? Well, some people will say it's Rome, but they don't have any evidence for that either. So, again, we try to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We know Peter was in Jerusalem. We don't know from Scripture that Peter was ever in Rome. Paul was in Rome. So all of these things suggest to me that Peter was in Jerusalem and was referring to she who is in Babylon elect together with you. What, who was that referring to? Christians in Jerusalem. That's what I believe. But let's support that and see how John turns Jerusalem into Babylon. Again, the early Christian belief saw that Judaism, where Jerusalem is centered, was under the judgment of God because they took Jesus' warnings to flee Jerusalem seriously. Jesus said that these all these things you see will be destroyed. He said when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then look up and, uh, and to flee. You can read about that in Matthew 24. Uh, that, you know, if you're on your roof, don't even go down. You need to get out of town, so to speak, because Jerusalem will be turned over, will will be trampled. And that's not the only place that he that he said that. He said that in other in other in other occasions, other instances as well. And he wept over Jerusalem. But he said you didn't recognize the time of your visitation, and now your house will be left desolate. In another place he says the kingdom will be taken from you and given to another nation. So early Christian belief interpreted all of that literally as well as spiritually. And so we see that John continues in that previously. John, we've seen that John associated Jerusalem to the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. We saw that in in Revelation 11.8. So now we can come, turn back to, to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Back to this scene of the two witnesses, which is really just symbolic of everything that is repeated again for us in Revelation 13, 14, and 15, and going on through 16 and 17. But Revelation 11.8 says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So here, John is very plain, and he spells it out. He associates, first of all, we see that there is a spiritual symbolism that is employed, that he explains. It's the city where our Lord was crucified. Well, we know that was Jerusalem. But spiritually speaking, John says, this great city is referred to as Sodom 
and Egypt. Now, why is Jerusalem? Why is John? And and again, I, I reiterate. For John to refer to the holy city, the city of, of the great king, the center of Judaism, for him to refer to Jerusalem as spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, that would be enough, I would think, for him to be stoned as a blasphemer. They certainly wanted to stone Stephen in the book of Acts because he spoke against the temple. Well, to speak this way of the great city, the great holy city of Jerusalem, would be intolerable to the Jews and would probably get John killed. But he says, spiritually speaking, this city where our Lord was crucified is called Sodom and Egypt. So this indicates several things, but one thing is very clear is that John, as well as the early Christians, no longer regarded Jerusalem as a holy city. It regarded Jerusalem as the city where their Lord was crucified, and spiritually they considered Jerusalem to be Sodom and Egypt. And that's not without precedence as well. Jesus says that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, for those of you living in Jerusalem. So we see here, John establishes a couple of things. First, he establishes a spiritual symbolism over Jerusalem. He he connects Jerusalem to Sodom and Egypt. God brought his people out of, what's the significance? God brought his people out of both of these places. He delivered Lot and his family from Sodom before he rained down fire from heaven to destroy it. And he also brought out his people after a great many plagues, which destroyed the land of Egypt. God brought his people out into the wilderness. And so there is a spiritual history here. Sodom was wicked. Egypt was pagan. Pharaoh said, I don't know the Lord, and why should I obey him? They had no clue who the Lord was. And God brought his people out of both of these places, and he also severely judged both Sodom and Egypt. So that's the first connection. And the second connection is several times Later on, John will refer to Babylon as that great city. Now, he's he also refers to Jerusalem as that great city. The great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So I'll go ahead and tell you that there are only three great cities mentioned in the book of Revelation. There is the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. There is that great city, which is Babylon, referred to as a great city. Revelation 14, 8, 16, 9, 17, 18, 18, 10, 16, 18, 19, and 21. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times John refers to Babylon as that great city. 
But before he does that, he refers to Jerusalem as that great city. And ultimately, we're going to see in the final chapters of Revelation that the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven is referred to as a great city. So all of this suggests that Jerusalem has become Babylon in the mind of John and in the belief and understanding of the early Christians. Why? Because Jerusalem is in rebellion against God. Jerusalem has failed to recognize Christ and not only failed to recognize him, but has actively persecuted and rejected him. And so Jesus warned of the judgment to come upon that city, and God calls his people out in Revelation 18, come out of her, my people, so that you will not be destroyed, so that you will not share in her plagues and be destroyed along with her. Okay, so this is a literal fulfillment. Jerusalem, Babylon was destroyed. If we take Babylon to mean Jerusalem and and we compare that with Scripture, we see a very clear correlation between the Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18 and how it is destroyed compared with how Jerusalem is destroyed. But we don't see a clear correlation between Babylon in Revelation and Rome, for example. Rome was not destroyed all at once in one hour, uh, but has endured and continues to endure. Um, so that, and we'll get more into that as we cover Revelation 18, but the, the point is that there are more indications that Babylon of Revelation refers to Jerusalem based on all of the uh, evidences that I have just shared. Now, it also means and gives weight to the idea that the book of Revelation was written prior to A.D. 70, which is fine as well. If we understand that just because something has already been fulfilled doesn't mean it has no future fulfillment, then we can certainly say that this represents Jerusalem as a type, as a figure, as a prophetic foreshadowing. So Babylon today, the spiritual fulfillment of what Babylon is all about, and that brings us to Revelation chapter 17. We'll start reading in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. 
But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. All right, so let's pause right there and and let's make some observations uh, as we close out part one. First, uh, as we have seen, Babylon is a religious spirit. It is opposed to God and it seeks godlike power and control, killing all who oppose it. That's the whole purpose. It's to control people through religion, and it's to achieve through religious control what cannot be achieved merely by political control. That's why totalitarian governments, communist governments like China, uh, they regulate religion very carefully. Religion and state are, are intertwined, and they monitor religious activity very closely because people are more devoted to their religious beliefs than they are to their political ideology. So Babylon is a religious spirit opposed to God that seeks godlike power and control, killing everyone who opposes it. Babylon, Scripture will tell us, is a great city. Babylon is a great city. Now, just because it's a great city, it doesn't mean it's it's not a spiritual a spiritual force or a religious spirit, because later on we're going to see that New Jerusalem is also a woman. So. New Jerusalem is referred to as the Bride of Christ, and it's a city. Babylon is referred to as a harlot, a woman, riding on a beast, drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And she is also referred to as a great city. Well, what is a city? A city is really nothing but an organization of people who live and work in close proximity. So a city is is really just an, an a vast organization of people living and working together. That's it. Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Babylon rides on top of the beast. It is the same beast, the same scarlet beast with seven heads and ten horns, and we know that to be the first beast, the beast from the sea. And also, as we have said, Babylon, old Jerusalem, is being contrasted with New Jerusalem. That's what makes New Jerusalem so significant, and New Jerusalem is also referred to as a great city in Revelation 21.10. In addition, Babylon is a harlot, and this is contrasted with the bride of Christ, who is a pure virgin. So what does all of this mean? Well, it means that old Jerusalem is competing with new Jerusalem. It means that the harlot is pretending pretending to be something that it can't be.
But most of all, Babylon represents religion, the spirit of religion, in all of its forms. Babylon represents the religious spirit in all of its forms. And it doesn't matter what form it takes. It could be Islam. It could be Buddhism. It could be any religion, but particularly and especially the Christian religion. Now, this is going to sound shocking and surprising to those of you who are not familiar with my writings and teachings. But for those of you who understand the difference between a religion about Jesus and a relationship with Jesus and have had some experience in that religion about Jesus, then you'll understand that the spirit of Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ. It means coming forth as Christ, yet opposing Christ. So here is a woman who is all dressed up as if she is a wealthy, prosperous person, but she's actually a harlot, a counterfeit bride. Here is someone that is supposed to be a great city, and yet spiritually it is Sodom and Egypt, and ultimately revealed as Babylon. Something that has been built and organized to create a name for itself, to control others, and it actually comes forth as God and yet opposes God. So whose blood is she drunk with? Drunk with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs of Jesus. Religion has killed more Christians in the name of Christianity, than all other religions combined. So Babylon represents religion in all of its forms, but particularly and especially, I believe, it represents the Christian religion. And could I, could I just call it the, the harlot church system or churchianity, which is the most deceptive of all? Why? Because it looks like a lamb, John says, but it speaks like a dragon. It looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Talks about Jesus, but it leads people away from Jesus. It's very seductive because it seems to attract people who love the Lord and want to do God's will, supposedly. But yet, when it all comes down to it, it's just another expression of the self-centered worship deifying man, lifting man up, making God subservient to man, putting man in the position of power and authority. And furthermore, when we get into Revelation 18 and we hear the Lord crying out, with a loud voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon, my people. This tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that God still has some people here. Some of his people are where they don't belong. And he's having to call them out. 
come out of her, my people. It also tells you that this can't be referring to some other religion besides the Christian religion. Most Christians aren't are Christians <laughs> because they're not Muslims. They're not Buddhists. They're not Hindu. They're not New Age followers. So it's not, it is not as if God is having to call his people out of Islam. It is not as if God has to call his people out of the New Age movement. It's not as if God has so many people in Buddhism and he's calling them to come out of Buddhism. What could God's people be connected to and be participating in that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon and God says you've got to come out. It's so seductive that it has ensnared and trapped so many of God's people. What else has the power to seduce like the church system? What else has the power to lead astray even God's own people than the harlot church system? So it's true that Babylon represents the spirit of religion in all of its forms, but it especially includes the Christian religion. Now, in John's day, the situation was a little bit different. And that's why we are looking at this in terms of a spiritual fulfillment and not just a literal fulfillment. In John's day, Babylon was represented by Jerusalem. And what did Jerusalem represent? It represented God's chosen people. Israel was the covenant nation. The Jews were God's chosen people. Judaism was the only path to God. And yet it was Judaism that rejected Jesus. It was Judaism that tried to destroy Jesus. It was Judaism that ultimately betrayed Jesus to be killed by the Romans. And it was Jerusalem that was destroyed, fulfilling the very thing that Jesus warned would happen in Matthew 24. So in that day, Jerusalem was the Babylon, the religious system, that to go against that system, to go against Jerusalem and to go against Judaism... It seemed as if you were turning your back on God himself. How could you how can you possibly call yourself a friend of God or a believer in God and not be part of the Jewish religious community and the Jewish religious system? And this is why in the book of Acts they had such a difficult time. They only preached Jesus to the Jews. To preach Jesus to people who were not Jewish, that was unthinkable. And yet they once they did, and the Holy Spirit began to bring Gentiles into the Christian community, then they began to realize that Christianity and Judaism is not going to be compatible. And they began to understand that they couldn't save Jerusalem because Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and they had to come out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem became Babylon. They were the ones now. God's own people were the ones standing in the way of God's purposes. So God says, come out of her, my people. And they did. And they evacuated Jerusalem and they 
scattered abroad, and some of them settled in the wilderness. So that's the literal fulfillment of that. But spiritually speaking, it's the same thing that's happening today, only today it's not Jerusalem, it's the Christian religion itself. It's the religion about Jesus that has taken preeminence over a relationship with Jesus. The religion about Jesus is Babylon. Organized religion, churchianity, has become the Babylon. You say, well, it's the Roman Catholic Church. It's all church. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all the thousands of denominations, it makes no difference. Babylon represents religion in all of its forms, including the Christian religion. Looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. So as we close part one, let's look at how various people will interpret what we have discussed so far. And this speaks to the question of who is Babylon? Well, different people, of course, look at it differently. Preterist position is that Babylon is Jerusalem. Christians came out of Jerusalem and evacuated it shortly before it was destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70, and that's what Revelation 17 and 18 is talking about. Okay, probably that's true. Again, doesn't mean it doesn't have another future fulfillment. As the historicists would say, their interpretation is that Babylon is the Roman Catholic Church and that the Protestant Reformation marked the beginning of its demise and its judgment. So whenever you are in the situation, in the history of the moment, it always seems as if uh, things are very clear. And um, however, with the hindsight, 500 years later, we see that the Protestant Reformation uh, made some cosmetic changes uh, to the Roman Catholic system. But essentially, uh, if you say that Babylon is the Roman Catholic Church, it does kind of fit Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, uh, because the Roman Catholic Church actually spawned the Protestant Reformation, and now we have thousands and tens of thousands of churches and denominations, each believing their own uh, unique thing, and um, still seducing God's people and leading them astray from the simplicity of Christ, giving them a religion about Jesus instead of a relationship with Jesus. All of that is predicted as well. If you read the kingdom parables of Jesus, you'll see that none of this is surprising or shocking. So this is how the historicists will interpret Babylon. And they make a very persuasive case. If we are looking at things from a spiritual perspective, then it certainly fits as well. The futurist interpretation says that Babylon represents a future one-world globalist religion, part of the Antichrist, part of the beast system. The two beasts coming up that we discuss, one out of the sea and one out of the land, the beast and the false prophet, all of this refers to a future one-world globalist religion. Uh, is it Islam? Is it Christianity? Is it Judaism? Is it some combination? Is it a New Age 
uh, or is it atheism or humanism? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. The futurist interpretation puts all of this into the future, into the into the the land of speculation, and so we can't say for sure. Now, the spiritual interpretation, which makes more sense to me, and as I have said, is that Babylon represents a religious spirit. It manifests itself and has manifested itself at various times all the way since the beginning of Babylon in Genesis 10, founded by Nimrod. This religious spirit manifests itself through Judaism, Christianity, Islam, New Age, and many of these other religions, all of these other religions that are leading people astray from the simplicity of Christ. Remember, it is the dragon who is angry, who comes down to the earth, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he knows that his time is short, and so he creates two strategies. He creates a, a political strategy, and he creates a religious strategy. And these two strategies working together is how he tries to get control over the nations of this world. So the spiritual interpretation of Babylon says, look, it, yeah, sure, it's, it's Judaism. Sure, it's the Roman Catholic Church. It's even the Protestant Church. And in some ways, it's even the house church movement because it's not a particular religion or movement or denomination that we point to. It is the religious spirit that we are looking at. It is the nature of religion itself that is the enemy of God. Now, since most people have been trained to equate God with religion, it is very difficult for them to separate religion from God. It's very difficult for them to separate religion from relationship. But you must make that distinction. You must make that separation in order to understand how we can say that a religion about Jesus has done more damage than any other religion on the face of the earth. It's the religion about Jesus that is the greatest seduction and deception of all time. So the hybrid interpretation and, and the approach that I typically take is that it is probably all of the above. And, and this makes the most sense. We can certainly see Jerusalem being reflected here in the destruction of Babylon. We can certainly see the harlot and, and the blood of the martyrs being on the Roman Catholic Church, without a doubt. But we also see that same spirit of religion passing on through the various Protestant denominations as well. And the Orthodox branch of Christianity, all of it is steeped in religious activity. Might this also point to a future one-world globalist religion? Well, of course it might, and it probably will, because that has been the direction of history up until this point. I'm saying there's nothing surprising about that. And I'm saying don't just think that it is something that is off in the future. It is here and now, and it is being developed as we speak. It's been going on ever since Nimrod in Genesis 10. 
So when, when people begin to share specific evidences of globalism or a one world government or a one world religion, they do it as if this is some new uh, revelatory thing in and of itself. And it's not. It's just it's just the same strategy of Satan that has been at work since the beginning of time to organize men into rebellion against the Lord. And what better way to do it than by creating a religious system that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon? It's the perfect deception. But it, it is a deception that is revealed and made known to those who love the truth. The scripture speaks of God sending a strong delusion upon those who don't love the truth. And what is the nature of that strong delusion? It is a religion about Jesus. What greater delusion than to delude yourself by believing that serving the, the church or serving the, the denomination or going to church is equivalent to serving Jesus? Two completely different things. The spiritual interpretation as well is basically saying this religious spirit of Babylon has manifested itself at various times in history. It has prophetic significance. We see it over and over again. And so Babylon kind of incorporates and gathers up together into one symbol. Everything about religion that is the antithesis of a relationship with Jesus. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at chiprogden.com.